You know what a meme is? Yeah, you get these uh, pictures with words on them, and uh, you share them with friends. Sometimes our family will text back and forth uh, different memes. But uh, there are a couple of memes that, that I like. There's a certain type of meme. I want to show you uh, just a few of these this morning. Here's, here's what a meme looks like. Uh, that face you make before you sneeze. I, I feel it, right? Uh, have you been there? You know, you, just, uh, you know, and, and, and so I, I relate to that. There's, there's this meme. Uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, the look you make when you visit an old website for the first time in years and you successfully guess your username and password on the first try. Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> yeah, right? You're just like, what was that? Oh, I, just, I just don't know. You're like, oh, I got it. And then there's this, this one. When you just booked a trip and you can't wait any longer, right? You know? We're going somewhere. If people still travel. Uh, that, that exciting face. I love that kid's face. And then finally, this one. This is for the parents. That look you make when you find out school is canceled for the rest of the year, right? How many of the parents here last year were like, no, right? Uh, it's like, what am I going to do? Um, I, like, I like these types of memes. Uh, and the reason why they're so funny and so enjoyable to get is because we can relate to them, right? We're like, I, I might not have made that exact face, but, but I feel like that's what I would do. That feels like I would, how I would uh, respond. Um, we're, they're relatable to us. Now you're wondering, how is this going to connect? Just wait. Um, when you come to study the scriptures, like today, we're going to be jumping in this new series on the book of Daniel. There can sometimes be a challenge because you have in your hands this book that some parts of it, like the book of Daniel written 2,500 years ago, it can sometimes not necessarily feel relatable on the face of it. Like take, for instance, the book of Daniel. Let me give you a little context to this book that we're going to be studying. It was written to a group of people who were in exile, who were captives, who were in a foreign land. They were literally taken from their home by force and brought thousands of miles away to some place that they did not know. Whole new culture, whole new traditions, the whole shoot and match. And so this book of Daniel was written ultimately to encourage these people and to instruct them during this time that they were in exile. Now, you look around today, we're living in America, we live in a free society, we're able to come to church, we're able to come to worship. And so we're coming to this book, this book of Daniel that was written to a group of people that were captives and who are in exile, and Daniel's writing to them, instructing them on how they're to live in the midst of their exile, and we can feel a little disconnected from it. It's not necessarily as quote-unquote relatable as those pictures, at least on the surface of it, at least on the face of it. But I want to tell you today that ultimately this book of Daniel is going to be relatable to us. You, you see, if you're taking notes, the first note that you should uh, be taking there is that this book you need to make note of, it was written to a people in exile, okay? Um, so, so we get that. This is a book written to a people who were in exile, and it was written to them for the purpose of, of answering the question, how do we live as exiles? How do God's people live as exiles. And so understanding that's the context, understanding that the book is trying to answer that question, you can say, but what about us? We're not exiles, so how does it relate? Well, the reality is it relates absolutely to us because from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until now, God's people have always been exiles. Not necessarily geopolitical exiles like the Israelites that we're going to read in the book of Daniel. 
but spiritually, we are exiles. We are a people who exist, as my brother Aaron said when he was preaching through this book to his church, with two passports. See, there is the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of this world. Now, these aren't two equal forces. God's kingdom is the greater kingdom, and God reigns and rules over all things, but nonetheless, there's the kingdom of this world, which was demonstrated when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and tried to get humanity to question God and to question his sufficiency, to question his power, to question his, his goodness. And from that moment on, when Adam and Eve sinned, there were these two competing kingdoms that exist, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Make no mistake, the kingdom of God has won and is winning, but the kingdom of this world continues to fight against the kingdom of God. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, and Savior. God's word is very clear. You are delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and you're brought into God's kingdom. Philippians tells us that we are citizens of God's kingdom. When we studied the book of First Peter, we, we were called exiles in the book of First Peter. And so on the face of it, you, you look at a book of Daniel and, and you say, well, I'm not a geopolitical exile, so what does this have to do with me? This book has everything to do with you because we are still a people in exile. We are people who are living in a place, although America, we have the freedoms that we have. Nonetheless, we are not citizens of this world. And so what we're going to find as we read the book of Daniel, it's going to be captivating. There's going to be some terrific stories. There's going to be some crazy prophecy. But at the end of the day, this book is as much for us as it was for them. It's a book that says, you and I as the people of God, how do we navigate living in a world that is ultimately not our home? And so I've been looking forward to studying this book with you, and so that's what we're going to do. Open up in your Bibles to Daniel, the very first chapter. I always ask this, are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? Because today I got a fire hose, okay? So be prepared. Here we go, Daniel chapter 1. This is where we're going to be this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to read this chapter. We're going to have fits and starts in going through it. And we're going to be looking to answer one very simple question this morning. It's a question that sets the stage for the rest of the book of Daniel. The question is, how are we to live as God's people in exile? In many ways, what Daniel gives us in Daniel chapter 1 sets the stage and is reinforced throughout the rest of the book. So the book starts this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Stop there. What Daniel is doing here in writing this book is he's grounding this book in a very specific time and place in history. Here's what was happening at that time and place in history. The nation of Israel, as actually Pastor Tony told us last week, at one point was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The ten tribes went up to the northern kingdom. Two tribes stayed and made up the kingdom of Judah. At this time and place in history, the Israel in the northern kingdom, they had already been captured by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and they were carried off into their own captivity. Now what we're reading is Nebuchadnezzar's coming from Babylon, and he's about to do the same thing to the people of Judah. So the entirety of the nation of Israel will now be captive. And so Daniel comes, and he says these words that Nebuchadnezzar came, and by the way, it says that he besieged it. When was the last time you heard somebody talk about besieging a city? Um, uh, let me just briefly tell you, this was an atrocious thing. When you besieged a city in the ancient world, often rather than fighting the people, you would surround them in a city and you would cut off all their resources. And so that one little word, when it says he besieged the city, everybody inside the city 
could only live and survive as long as they still had the resources inside the city. Some besiegements would last years. And the atrocities that would happen for people just to keep themselves alive because they, they would rather starve to death than, than be taken as captive, well, that's what was happening here. And so, verse 2 tells us, eventually the besiegement came to an end. I'm going to read an extended section here. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach these guys the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that, that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. There is a lot here in just these first few verses. But the first thing that I want you to notice is that while the city of Jerusalem was being besieged, eventually that besiegement came to an end. It eventually came to an end. Nebuchadnezzar conquered and he carried off some people into Babylon. And by the way, notice that when he carried um, people off into Babylon, who did he take with him? He didn't just take the material possessions. He took the best and the brightest of the people of Babylon. He took those who were of the nobility, those who would serve the kingdom of Babylon well if they were trained in Babylonian ways. And one of the people that was taken was the very author of this book. Why is that important? Well, because it's letting us know that what we're about to read is, in fact, history and history experienced by a very specific person. And so when I told you earlier that the book of Daniel was written to help exiles understand how they're to live as God's people in captivity, the person that's writing it was somebody who had experienced it himself and who's actually writing this with the perspective of looking back on what took place and how God sustained him through that time. So Daniel is not somebody who is removed from suffering, somebody who's just kind of throwing out their ideas of how to do this. Daniel's saying, I'm somebody who actually lived this. And one of the first things that Daniel says to us as people who are exiles people who are living in a place that's ultimately not our home, people who are living in a world whose values and systems don't submit to God in his ways, the first thing he comes to us and he tells us is this, remember that God is in control. If you as an exile are going to navigate your life in this world, Daniel teaches us in a very, very simple yet profound way that we must remember that God is in control. Look back at the text with me. Verse 2 says this, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. You know, Daniel's writing years down the road, and he's writing about the events that took place in his life. And as he looks back, he lets us know that everything that took place happened because God was in control. You see, Babylon was by all intents and purposes a vastly superior, stronger army than that of 
Judah and its people. Of course, they should be able to capture the Israelites and carry them off. They were the dominant superpower. But Daniel says, make no mistake, what happened, why we went into captivity, it was because God made it happen. In fact, Daniel's very specific in the word that he uses. He used the Hebrew word yatan to describe this. He doesn't say that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take them into captivity. He doesn't say that he permitted Nebuchadnezzar to do it. It says that God gave yatan to make something, to bring something about. God was the one who made it happen. There were other times in Israel's history where a vastly superior army came against the Israelites and those armies lost. Why? Because God had a hand in it. It didn't matter that Nebuchadnezzar was the superpower of that day. God could have stopped it from happening, but he didn't. And then he gives this little phrase that is just so awesome, just to show you how much of a God, or just how powerful God was and his having a hand in making it happen. Did you notice, it says that God gave Jeho Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, you and I can look at that, and we can just read past that, but that phrase is important. Did Nebuchadnezzar get all the vessels of the house of God? No. What do you think he's communicating there? If you were an invading army and you came in, you'd take everything. And it's like God is coming and saying, listen, listen, listen. You know what? He's coming. I'm going to give him some of the stuff, but he doesn't get all of it. I'm keeping some back. Just in case you don't think that I'm in ultimate control of this, he didn't take everything. He just took some of the things because I gave them to them. Daniel's coming in and saying, remember, God is in control. We need this. He's in control of what's happening even when it doesn't seem like it. The good and the bad, the consistent refrain of the Bible is God is never caught by surprise. God is always working and in control. You see, as the people of God in exile, both back then and even today, when we recognize that the world that we live in does not seek to serve, love, and follow God, sometimes things can happen in our world and it can seem like evil is winning. Like evil will take the day. That the world is just out of control. Did 2020 not feel like the world was out of control sometimes? We came back to this time and time again. We came back to this truth. Why? Because those in exile can sometimes fall into despair if it's all going to you-know-what in a handbasket. But the truth is, we anchor ourselves as God's people that despite what is happening, even having my family carried off into captivity Daniel one day sitting in his room, minding his own business, when the besiegement falls apart and he's ripped away and he's taken into captivity, Daniel can look back on that and say, God is in control. God doesn't want us to lose perspective. Now, I need to address something right here in this moment. As I say that, you probably, some of you heard me say, whoa, whoa, whoa. God was in control of a situation that brought suffering to certain people's lives? And my answer to that is, yes, he did. He was completely in control of that. And you're like, Dave, I thought this was supposed to be an encouraging thought that God is in control. Well, it depends on what perspective you're going to look at it from. You see, if God is not in control of all things, then here's what you're accepting. 
what you're accepting is that ultimately God is not powerful enough to ultimately stop suffering from happening. If he's not in control of even those events that to us bring about suffering that we can't understand in the moment, if God's not in control of that, then what that means additionally is that my suffering is pointless and that, that nothing could potentially change my suffering. If God's not even in control of those things, there is no hope for us. But God is in control. He does have a plan, and he does have a purpose. And sometimes this side of heaven, it doesn't always make sense. Even Jesus would say in the garden, my God, if there's any way, Father, that this cup can pass from me, let it. He knew he was about to enter into suffering and enter into a suffering that was orchestrated by the foreordained plan of God before the foundation of the world. And even Jesus cried out, Lord, I'd rather not go through this. But what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Because he knew that his God was in control and, and that ultimately... God is working all things together for our good, even in the moments that we don't understand. But with God being in control, Daniel is also showing those who are in exile a word that you and I need to hear even today, and that's this, God always keeps his word. Do you know why the Israelites were carried off into captivity? Long, long, long before Daniel, after Israel was taken out of the promised land or out of the land of Egypt and brought into the promised land, they were taken from slavery and put in the promised land. God came to them and he gave them his law. And he said, I'm not giving you my law so that you would obey it in order to become my people. I delivered you already. I already saved you. My law is now for you to know how God's people are to live in the land of promise and the land of blessing. God says, here you go. You get the promised land and everything will be provided for you. But here's the one thing. You have to walk in my ways. If you fail to live according to, to my word and my law, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, God comes and he says, something's going to happen. If you fail to walk in my ways, you will be carried off you will be conquered by a people. You will be taken from the land of blessing. You'll be taken from the land of promise. So here we are, all these years later, and Daniel looks back and he sees the people of God being taken out of the land of promise, and he says, God was the one who did that, and God did that because Israel had failed to live as an obedient people, and so they were facing now the judgment and the curse that God had said that they would do. We like it sometimes when people keep their word. We love it when people keep their word and it does something good for us. But here's the deal. God keeps his word in both the good things for us and in the things that are discipline and judgment for us. And that's what they're experiencing right here. They were experiencing the judgment of God. He kept his word. But you know why this is so important? The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are a record of history. The last chapters of the book of Daniel are prophecy of future things that are going to happen. And so when Daniel is reminding us that God had his hand in taking them out of the land of promise as a fulfillment of God keeping his word, when we come to all the prophecies later in the book that all talk about how God is going to restore and redeem not just the people of Israel, but he's going to bring about the Son of Man who will save humanity, when he makes those prophecies... They're thinking back to the fact, well, God kept his word in the past. He did what he said he would do back there. If he's making a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future, guess what? I can trust his word then as well. 
Why do God's people need to remember that God is in control? Because, church, it anchors us. What God has said he will do, he will do. He has a hand in your suffering. He has a hand in my suffering. And sometimes on this side of heaven, we look at it and say it doesn't make sense, but he is in control, navigating and guiding. And if he wasn't in control, then all hope would be lost. How do we live as a people of God? The first thing that he comes to us and he says is you got to remember, your God is in control. But there's a second thing that we need to remember something that we have to actually recognize, and that's this. We need to recognize as people in exile that the world is seeking to conform you to its ways. Can I get an amen to that? Even before you know what I'm going to say, can I get an amen to that? Do, do, you, do you know that? Do you know that these two kingdoms that, that are battling each other, God is going to win, and he has won the victory in and through Jesus Christ, and one day every knee will bow, and every tongue can, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But let me ask, does every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord right now? Is that what we feel? Is that what we experience? It's not the case. The world is seeking to continually pull us away and to conform us to its image rather than to the image of God. And in this text, Daniel takes great pains to describe what happened to him and his friends how they were taken from the land, and then what the king did. Why is he doing that? Because, listen, church, the world is seeking to conform you to its ways. And the beautiful thing that Daniel does here is he gives us the blueprint for how the world seeks to do this. Did you notice the way that the world will seek to conform you to its ways? Number one is through isolation. Through isolation. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Nebuchadnezzar takes the best and the brightest and he removes them from their land, removes them from their traditions, removes them from their culture, removes them from their place of worship. And he says, I'm going to take you into my land. He wants to ultimately have them serve Babylon. He ultimately wants to have them serve himself. And if they're going to do that well, he needs to isolate them. And that's exactly what he seeks to do. One of the ways the world seeks to pull us away from the Lord, to conform us into its image, is through isolation. Make no mistake today, if you are in Jesus Christ, you've been brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. But what we must not be is ignorant to the fact that while Jesus is our King and our Lord, the temptation exists to not walk in his ways and to not follow him, to not even discern whether or not that's the case. And, and the, the great danger for us as the people of God is to be isolated from one another. The way that the devil works, listen, in nature you know this. When, you're, when a predator in nature is trying to attack a member of the herd, does that predator go after the entire herd at one point? No, what do they do? They try and separate it separate it from the herd where they can be vulnerable and they can make their kill. You and I, when Jesus saves us, brings us into his family. He said, that's why we say we're a church family here. We're a body. Uh, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. If one member suffers, all members suffer. But if you cut yourself off, if you isolate yourself from other believers, you are making yourself vulnerable to the attacks of the devil and God brought you into a community for the purpose of strengthening you. We're weak when we're apart. We're strong when we're together. 
You know, as exiles today, spiritual exiles, not geopolitical ones, when we recognize that our citizenship is in heaven and not here, I was thinking a lot about this this week. And I want to make a statement today. Most of us are probably not going to be taken out of California and brought over to, like, China and separated from the church here. It's not like somebody's going to come in and capture us. It could happen. I'm not putting it past those things. But the reality is, in America today, with the freedoms that we have, I'm going to say something. Isolation as a Christian is most likely 100% on you. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's not that somebody is going to seek to isolate you from the church. It's that you're going to isolate yourself from the body. You're going to pull yourself away through any myriad of, of ways. There's going to be other things that are going to be tempting you to say, you know what, gathering with the saints on Sunday morning, being a part of a group of believers intentionally and consistently to be built up in the faith. It's why our memory verse is what it is. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's not forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. It's why one of our key values as a church, when we say, who are disciples and what do they do? Disciples, it's, we say, we gather for corporate worship. Why? Because the world wants to isolate you from others. And when you're isolated from others, you're weak and you're vulnerable. Consistently gathering with the saints, it's not going to guarantee you walking faithfully, faithfully with God. But let me tell you something. Show me a Christian, at least someone who professes to be a Christian, who fails to gather faithfully with the saints. And number one, I'll show you somebody who's walking in active disobedience to the word of God. And then number two, I'm going to show you somebody who has left themselves vulnerable to conforming to the world and not to the Lord. The beautiful thing about isolation, at least today, is this. To combat it is relatively easy. Did you know that? Do you know how you combat falling into isolation from other believers? Come on now. This is like the simplest application in the world, right? You gather with other believers. It's not a hard thing to do. That's why I say in America today, isolation is 100% on us. When we choose to not take the means of enjoying and experiencing the community, Daniel and his friends, they didn't really have a choice. They were ripped from their land. We have the blessing of coming together. But there's another thing beyond isolation, indoctrination. Look at, look at how the world seeks to conform us to its ways. Isolation separates you, gets, gets you vulnerable, gets you away. The second thing is indoctrination. Look at verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar is like, here's the plan. We're going to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, verse 5. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. A re-education is what Nebuchadnezzar had ordered. First, we'll isolate them. Second, we'll indoctrinate them. We will teach them and put before them every single day the ways, the customs, the traditions, the language of our people. We will turn them into Babylonians. Now, that was what Daniel was faced with. You and I, as exiles in this world, we're not faced with the same kind of forced indoctrination. They were taken and they were forced to learn these things. But nonetheless, is the temptation or the potential for your indoctrination and my indoctrination 
that is an education in the things other than the, the values and the truth of God, is that a potential for you and I today? Yeah, somebody laughed, right? That's the person who had the right answer. You bet it is. Every major media outlet in America has the explicit stance that you following God and making your faith public is ridiculous at best and is harmful to others at worst. When you watch the news, when you see what's put out there, and I don't care what news you watch, you are being every day put before you a worldview and a knowledge system that runs contrary to the Word of God. Every movie that's produced in Hollywood, every TV show that's put on TV, can you find glimmers of truth in those things? You, there, there can be that. But the fact of the matter is, all that we hear all day long is, is that which ultimately is contrary to the Word of God. That's not a forced indoctrination, but it exists that's out there. It, and and let's, let's be real about something. And this isn't, this isn't me trying to be political or knock something. The very U.S. governmental public education system, the stated position of our schools is the fact that God does not exist. The world was brought into existence by nature, not by God. You can't talk about or debate God in our public schools. And on top of that, when you look at the schools, the morality, the Ten Commandments, they can't even be posted in a school. Now, why do I say that? Am I just trying to say, hey, don't ever watch the news and pull your kids out of the public school system? That's not what I'm saying at all. Because the fact of the matter is, Daniel and his friends, they took the education. They, they allowed themselves to hear those things. The reason why I'm making us aware of this is the fact that you and I don't have the luxury of being ignorant that every single day the world is trying to indoctrinate you, trying to teach you things that run contrary to the Word of God. It happened with Daniel, but it still happens today. And Daniel is telling us very intimately what happened to him because he doesn't want us to be ignorant of these things. How then do we fight indoctrination? Do we stop watching the news, listening to the radio, watching TV, going to school? No. The reality is, though, we combat it with the reality of studying God's Word, being grounded in this truth. It's why our second core value as a church is that we grow spiritually. We didn't pick that out of thin air. God's Word tells us that we're not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of, anybody want to finish it? The renewing of our mind. How's your mind renewed, my mind renewed? By submitting it to the Word of God and coming to it and being intentional about it. I had this later in my notes. I'm going to jump to it right now. You know, Daniel and his friends, their names were changed, right? Did you see that? Daniel was supposed to be called Belshazzar, and, and uh, Mishael was Meshach. And so their names all got changed. You tried to remove their identity. But do you know what? Throughout the rest of the book, do you know how those boys continued to refer to themselves? They never referred to themselves by their Babylonian names. They always referred to themselves by their Hebrew names. And each one of their Hebrew names had a meaning. It had a truth that would point them back to who God was and what he had done for them. How did they combat that indoctrination? 
They kept on proclaiming, at least to one another, even in the statement of their names, who they really were, the truth of who their God really was. It's a fascinating little thing. We need to do the same. But the last thing that, that, that we see him doing here was just full-blown full integration. Why does a king say, eat from my table? Why does he come and he say, eat my food, change your names, drink what I drink? Because the king, he wanted to completely integrate them into the system. He wanted them so familiar with the ways and means of Babylon that it would be almost virtually impossible for them to remember what their lives had been like before. There are so many ways that the world try, tries to do the same thing with us. It attempts to combine politics with Christianity. It, it tries to get us to identify ourselves with systems and with structures rather than with the church and rather than with our God. It's just this, this slow easing into our lives, those things. And before we know it, we've bought into the values wholesale. And what Daniel does here in the final two points is this. He ultimately shows us how we resist all of this, how we resist conforming to the world, and it starts in verse 8. Daniel says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave, again, God's in control, Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He comes and he says, listen, Daniel, if you're not going to eat the food, if you're not going to drink the drink, I'm in danger of losing my life. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants, he says, for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. Daniel and his friends only drank water, ate vegetables. Everybody else ate what the king ate. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel gives a lot of space here to how he ultimately resolved to not give in to the fullness of what the king of Babylon wanted them to do. He recognized what was happening, and what he did, rather than, than joining into full-blown integration, Daniel resolved to keep following the Lord. In answer to the question, how is it that we are to live as exiles? At some point, when confronted with the world trying to conform us to its ways, we have to resolve to keep following the Lord. There has to be a definitive mark in our mind. That's what the word resolve means. It means I see two paths in the wood, and I have made the decision that I will not go down one path. I will go down the other. That's what Daniel did with his friends. He said, I see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. A lot of people have wondered, why didn't he eat the food at the king's table? 
Did he not want to eat the food at the king's table because it was offered to idols? No doubt the food was offered to idols. And so he would have been right to refuse it for that reason. Some would say it just wasn't kosher. It didn't meet the dietary restrictions of the people of Israel. And it most likely was not kosher. And so he could have rejected it for that reason. But neither of those two things are the reason why he rejected it. He accepted vegetables and he accepted water. And he asked only for those things for one very clear reason, a reason that the chief eunuch understood. It was so that when it was all said and done, it would be absolutely and abundantly evident that God had provided for him, that God had sustained him, that God was the one who enabled him, and that the king of Babylon had nothing to do with it. And you say, how do we know that that was the case? Because it was for the exact opposite reason that Israel had gone into captivity. See, years before this, the very reason, the final straw that, if you will, broke the camel's back was this. The king of Judah was at a place in his life where he was coming up against an invading army. And he believed that he wasn't strong enough to defeat that army. And so guess what nation he called upon to help him rather than turning and asking the Lord for help. Anybody want to guess? Anybody want to guess? What? Babylon. He called on the emissaries of Babylon. He said, would you come and would you help us defeat this other army? And God's like, oh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. Why would you trust in these foreign armies? God comes to him and says, because of this, Babylon itself will one day be the nation that takes you over. Daniel and his friends said, I ain't going to eat anything from the king's table because I'm going to seek no help from him. My help, my abilities will come only from God's provision. That's why the eunuch, the chief eunuch, this chief steward was like, what are you doing? If I allow you to eat these things, you're going to look horrible and the king's going to take my head. And Daniel says, would you please just let me do it? Why? Because Daniel had looked and he says, I'm in exile here, but I am resolving that I will keep following the Lord. And what that looks like is that my dependence will be upon him and not upon the things of the kingdoms of this world. Can you see a potential connection for us as exiles today? There is a strong pull for us to make our foundation and to make our trust the things that the world can do for us. The first way that a, that a believer comes to demonstrate that they will resolve to keep following the Lord is when they say, nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. Our salvation is 110% dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ for us. But guess what? Our ongoing walk is 110% upon Jesus' work in our lives. Daniel comes in this story and he says, what does it look like to resolve what does it look like to live as a follower, as an exile, is that you resolve to follow the Lord no matter what. We don't take the shortcuts. We don't say we need this in order to get through. All we need is Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to know that he's the one that's going to provide. Do you trust him? Have you resolved to keep following him? Do you think that's, that's a one-time thing? Do you think that's a one-and-done thing? 
Resolving to follow the Lord is a day-by-day thing, and we're going to see story after story where Daniel and his friends, during the time of their exile, are going to have to continue to resolve, to keep following him. The temptation is going to be to be pulled away. There's a, a dear friend of mine who one time experienced great, great tragedy and loss in his life. And as people watched him and his family go through that, I remember the words that he had said in that moment when somebody said, how are you getting through this? How, how, are, you, how are you following the Lord in the midst of this? And the person said, I learned to just simply follow God in the small things. Day by day, just trusting in Him in the small things. And so when the big thing came, I just kept on doing what I had always done. I kept trusting in Him. To resolve to follow the Lord, it starts in the littlest decisions day by day in your life and my life. Can I trust Him? Is He really in control? Daniel and his friends, think about it. It was such a small thing, but it was a huge thing. We're not going to rely upon the king's food to sustain us. We're going to trust in God. And then what does God do? Let's just finish the story this morning. It says that when the days were done, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. I just love that translation. They, they were hearty than all, of, all the other ewes. So the steward took away their food and he kept on giving them vegetables and water. Verse 17, as for these four ewes, what does God do? God gave them learning and skill in all literature. They resolved to follow him and God took care of them. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There's their Hebrew names. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. As they resolved to follow the Lord, Daniel then closes out and he shows us here, and he gives us an encouragement. Trust that God will supply what you need. How do we live as exiles? We resolve to follow the Lord and then we trust, not because we hope he will supply what we need, but because we know he will. That's where this verse starts, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning. God made them succeed. He supplied what they needed. It goes back to what we had just said. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him as word. Why? We know as exiles that if God has provided for our greatest need through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the more we resolve to keep following him because we're going to trust him that he will continue to supply because he who promised is what? Faithful. As we go through the rest of the book of Daniel, I pray that our hearts will see just how relatable the story of Daniel is to our own lives and that it will just bolster us as a people in this time and in this place to continue to follow, to continue to walk to the praise and glory of God's name and for the good of one another. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we come to you, 
We come to you, the God who has shown himself faithful. The one who even in our suffering has shown that, Lord, you don't leave us or forsake us, but you go with us. Father, help us to be aware of the truth that while we have comfort and ease so often here in this life and in this place, we are nonetheless exiles. This is not our home. We are, we are just as much confronted with the temptations and the struggles that Daniel and his friends have faced. But Lord, may we, by the Spirit that indwells us, live in the power of your Spirit to walk in faithfulness to you to learn from these men, but ultimately to see that one greater than Daniel went through the trials, lived as an exile himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And because he won the victory for us, even though we're in exile, we look forward to the day when the fullness of our citizenship will be made known as your people. And so we pray and we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.